Well, as Jeff just prayed, we are indeed working our way somewhat not uh, verse by verse, but picking out different psalms. And this morning, the psalm that we will be looking at is Psalm 39, if you want to turn to that and keep your Bibles open. I will be reading it in a few moments, and, uh, and also we'll be looking at it uh, kind of closely, so you may want to keep your Bibles open as I go through the sermon. You know, as we look at the Psalms, what we see is that the Psalms, as I mentioned last week, are the hymnal of the Bible. The Psalms are poetry. The Bible has lots of different genres in it. Uh, it has letters, and it, it has narrative and, and history, and the Psalter is a, a collection of poems. And what poetry does, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of poetry myself, although I do love the Psalms, but what poetry enables us to do is to slow down a bit. I think one of the, the advantages of poetry, it's one of the reasons I don't really like it so much, but I think one of the advantages is that it's sometimes hard to figure out what's being said. So you have to slow down and reread it and reread it and say, what exactly is he getting at here? And that's sometimes what we find in the Psalms. I think the Psalms are just intended to be meditated upon, to be read slowly, and to think about what is being said. Most of the Psalms were written by David. In fact, oftentimes people think David wrote all the Psalms. He didn't, but he did write the majority of them. And, and when we read David's Psalms, what we see is that David expresses a whole gamut of emotions. Oftentimes, David writes about the joy that it is to follow the Lord, the joy that it is to be a child of God. And we, we see David see th say things like this, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We see David express things like this, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But we see David express himself by saying, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And we read these things, and I, I think sometimes as Christians, I think oftentimes, by God's grace as Christians, we read these and, and we resonate with them. And we say, yeah, that's so true. I really resonate with that today. But sometimes, as Christians, we don't quite resonate with those things. Sometimes we resonate more with other psalms. And many psalms are called psalms of lament in Scripture. And the psalm that we're going to be looking at today, Psalm 39, is one of those psalms. And as one scholar puts it, Psalm 39 is, is this. David is overwhelmed in Psalm 39. He's not overwhelmed, however, by the world. He's overwhelmed by God himself. The last verse of Psalm 39, Psalm 39, 13, has been called the most provocative and disturbing verse in the entire Psalter, asking not 
for God's presence, but imploring God's absence. That's what we'll be looking at today. So please turn to Psalm 39, if you haven't already. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 3 first, I want us to see that David, here again speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is expressing some sort of deep anguish. David is upset, and he's deeply upset about something. We don't exactly know what it is but he's upset right from the beginning. And he's so upset that he says he's determined not to speak about it. He's going to keep his mouth shut. Now, saying that, the first two words of the psalm are, I said. So it seems almost as if David is contradicting himself. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. I was mute and silent. I held my peace. He is stressing in many different ways and, and by pictures his uh, intent to be completely silent about what it is that he's upset about. So obviously, when he starts out saying, I said these things, he's saying these things to himself. He's saying these things essentially silently, mentally. Why? Why is he intent to keep silent? Well, he tells us. He gives us two clues anyways. He says, look, I don't want to sin with my tongue. He also says, I don't want to say what it is that I want to say, especially in the presence of the wicked. 
See, there is something that is deeply disturbing David. Again, we don't quite know what it is, but he has this, I think, desire to scream it out. He has a desire to post it everywhere. He has a desire to put it on Twitter and to post it on Facebook and to make a YouTube video about it and and in every way possible get the word out about what it is he's upset about. But he stops and he pauses and he says, wait a second, I'm not going to say what it is I want to say. Because if I say what it is I want to say, I might sin with what I say. And furthermore, even if I don't sin with what I say, somebody who is not a child of God might hear what I say and twist it and change what I say in order to harm me or to harm God. He doesn't want the wicked to twist what it is that he wants to say. So he remains silent. He vows to remain silent and you see that he succeeds. He says, I was mute and silent. And And obviously, I think on the surface, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because we see what his intent is. And I think if we we just pause here before we even get in any further into the psalm, I think we can take a lesson from this. Because how many of us, especially in, in today's day and age with social media, feel an urge to say something and, and maybe the urge is, is based on something that's, that's righteous and pure. Maybe the, the urge is, is something that, that we think is godly. And, and so we, we quickly get it out there to everybody. And maybe we look back on what we wrote and we say, wow, that, that actually was rather sinful, what I said. Or, or maybe it wasn't, but you see all the comments that are posted after it, and they took and twisted everything you had to say, and now God looks really bad based on what we said. I, I think there's something that we can take from this, a clue that we can take from this posture to, to simply pause before we post something and say, wait, wait a second, am I speaking in anger? Am I speaking in rage? Am I speaking out of frustration that could be twisted by all the wicked who might read what I post. Now I say on the surface this was a good thing. Because notice in here what his silence leads to. He says, my silence was to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. I mean, these are, this is intense language about what is going on inside of David. Now, I don't know if David had a poker face. I don't know what kind of poker face he had if he had one. Maybe David was the type of guy, and maybe he he had to be this way as king. Uh, He had to learn to be this way. But maybe David was the type of guy who could have this kind of, of anger and rage and anxiety burning within him and yet look like he was fine on the outside i don't know some of us are that way some of you may be doing that this morning i think oftentimes we as christians show up to church on sunday maybe we go to a small group maybe we go to a prayer meeting whatever it is and we've got all kinds of things going on on the inside and yet when someone fellow christian sees us and says how are we doing we say great how are you 
when it couldn't be further from the truth. But we don't want to say what it is that's bothering us. Maybe that's David. Maybe not. Maybe David wore his emotions on his sleeve. Maybe everyone around him and, and all of his, the, 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 the men who, who attended to him and, and everyone in his court, maybe they could all tell how upset he was, but they just didn't want to ask him because after all, you don't approach the king and say, what's on your mind? We don't know. It doesn't matter though because David is saying that the silence isn't helping. The silence is making what he wanted, what, what he was upset about, it's making it worse. These metaphors, my, my heart became hot, the fire burned. It, he's describing increasing anger and rage that's building inside. That's why he says it's to no avail. Because what good is an outward display of peace if it betrays inward rage? What good does it really do? His desire not to sin with his tongue leads to sin in his heart and mind. And how different this silence is, this, this display of silence, how different this is from, say, the silence that he expresses in Psalm 62. Same guy, David, Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. There in Psalm 62, he was silent in the face of trouble and yet calm as could be inside. Psalm 62, his outward display of peace reflected his inward disposition, but not here. Here, he is a raging storm inside. Why? What, what was the problem? Well, you could say that the problem was simply that he wasn't expressing himself. And I think that's part of it, that he was just bottling it up. But I think maybe, maybe the, the larger point here that we might miss if we just run too quickly over it is when we look at who it is David is addressing in the beginning. This is a very autobiographical psalm. Not all laments are, but this one, he's, he's kind of describing, I think, an actual event in his life and a time in his life when he felt this way and did this thing. And when you look at who it is he speaks to, when he says, I said, I will guard my ways, his opening words are addressed to himself. David is distraught. He's upset. Something is bothering him. He's frustrated. He might feel a certain way about God, I think, as we find out later in the passage. So thankfully, he doesn't sin with his words, but he's all alone. See, sometimes I think what we do when we're bothered, when, when rage is building, or maybe we're upset, or maybe we're anxious, or something going on in the world, or something going on in our life, rather than speaking to God, we speak to ourselves about it. We just think, it, think about it, and mull it over, and, and look at it in many ways, like a diamond, looking at different facets, and try to figure out how it is we're going to conquer this problem in our life. And that never goes anywhere, for me, anywhere healthy. 
If I just continue to mull this thing over in my mind, I realize pretty quickly that I am inept to solve the problem myself. And then the anxiety just grows and grows. And that's what we see here. David speaking to himself. No, I've got this covered. I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to sin. I'm just going to be silent. And he said the rage built within him. Well, we see here that it, it doesn't last forever. He, he finally says here at the end of verse 3, then I spoke with my tongue. You see, now he's making explicit the fact that when he spoke earlier, it was with his mind. When he spoke earlier, it was silently. Now he's saying, no, then I did finally speak with my tongue. The difference is when he spoke with his mind, he spoke to himself. Now when he finally speaks with his tongue, he speaks to the Lord. He goes to the right person. Verses 4 to 6, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Paul says in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that when David finally goes to the right person, when he begins expressing his feelings to God, he begins by asking for insight. He asks God for knowledge about something. But what struck me as I study the psalm is that it's not the kind of insight I might have expected. Maybe not the kind of insight you would have expected in this situation. I expected that when David finally spoke, he would cry out with some kind of rage. He would have said something like, oh Lord, why have you done this? Oh Lord, why are these people doing this to me? But instead, notice David's requests. Oh Lord, make me know my end. Make me know what is the measure of my days. Oh Lord, let me know how fleeting I am. How interesting that he goes there. But I think as we analyze this prayer, what we see is that David is pleading with God for a proper perspective. He's pleading with God for a proper perspective. And this is so important. It's important for all of us, but it's important for David. Because David was the king of Israel. David was the man with the most power in Israel. David was the man who could order anyone around, could tell people what to do, could send people off to war, could essentially almost do whatever he wanted. And so it would probably be very easy, especially when David was full of anger and when he was upset at something going on, it was probably not that hard for David to step out of the role of king in his mind and into the role of God. I mean, I think we all have that tendency. I think, really, bottom line, that's what sin is. 
When, when each of us decide to sin, we're basically saying, I'm not going to live under God's law. I'm going to be a law unto myself. I'm going to be my own God. And when you're in a position of power like that, well, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think that David, for the most part, being a man after God's own heart, I think for the most part, he never really forgot who the true king of Israel really was. But we see one time when he did, at least. And that was when David wanted Bathsheba. And when he wanted Bathsheba, he acted as God. He did whatever he wanted to do, and he didn't care what the ramifications were. He took a man's life in order to get what he wanted. And so David here, feeling this frustration and feeling this anger and feeling like maybe he's been wronged unjustly and, and, and he shouldn't be in this position and maybe he feels as though he's about to step out into that role of God and he says, God, please show me who I really am. And notice he, he speaks here when he finally speaks to the Lord, he says, oh Lord, that word Lord again, I've said before, all caps, it's the covenant name Yahweh. And when we hear God speak about his name, we hear him speak to Moses, remember, in the Exodus, when God calls Moses to go rescue his people. And Moses says to God, look, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When Moses asked God, what is your name? God essentially said, I am the everlasting God. I am the God who has no beginning and no end. I am the God, I'm the only one in this universe who has necessary being in and of himself. Say that to the people who are living under the yoke of false gods of Egypt who are the creation of men. See, David, right from the beginning, when he turns to God, notice that David isn't addressing himself anymore. Now he is addressing, I am who I am. When David turns to the Lord, he is addressing the one who alone has necessary being in, him, in and of himself. He is addressing the one who has no beginning and no end, and David is immediately humbled. He says, I am fleeting. My days are a few handbreadths. A handbreadth was four fingers across. It was one of the smallest measurements in, in the Hebrew uh, language, and David says that. That's, that's, that's who I am. I might be king of Israel, but if you really look at my life, I'm but a few handbreadths. He says, my lifetime is as nothing before you. I am a mere breath. In fact, all of man goes about as a mere shadow. Scripture teaches this all over the place. Job 14, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and then withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 90, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. 
Their span is toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, then the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Isaiah 40, a voice says cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, and surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. James 4, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Scripture over and over and over again humbles us as creatures and says, if you think your life is indispensable, think again. You are but a mist that flourishes for a little while and then goes away quickly. My dad, I remember he used to tell me that, uh, I think the way you described it was... um, Somebody, I was looking at you and I was playing with you and you were a little boy and then somebody called me and I turned away and answered them and when I turned back, you were a grown man. And I realized that just this week because Luke and Andrew uh, are doing CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, and, and they were at a church at Crossroads Community Church and, and that's where I drove them this week and I, I worked on my sermon there in, in a spare nursery room. And uh, and. And one time I escaped because so many of the people came and told me, you've got to hear your boys teaching this lesson to them. So I said, fine. So on the last day, I snuck out and I, and I watched them teach. And I was just struck by the fact that it wasn't that long ago that Luke and Andrew would have been in that VBS listening to some teenager teach them. It, it, it was amazing how this struck me this week. Matthew McCullough, in his book, Remember Death, he writes this, this is where death is so humbling. Death tells us that we are not indispensable. We are not too important to die. You see, focusing on our mortality, specifically focusing on how few our days are when compared to the eternality of God, it it rids us of our inherent narcissism. We all think, in a way, I think, until we check ourselves, that the whole world revolves around us. That that basically, this world was meant for me. And we can't imagine ourselves in that movie. Not in that movie, right? Well, wait a second, you're telling me like I only have a month to live? That's impossible. Why is it impossible? We're not indispensable to the universe. Why is it impossible when we're told we're going to die? This is what scripture says over and over again. And David needs to know at this moment that he is not too important to die. That even as king of Israel, he is not indispensable. David needs to know at this moment that there is one God and it's not him. And by focusing here on the brevity of life, it puts things in tremendous perspective. Blaise Pascal writing about those who push death out of their thinking, he says this, 
They fear the most trivial things. And the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but felt neither anxiety nor emotion. It's a monstrous thing to see one in the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest thing. One of my best friends says that he used to sweat the small stuff all the time. And I remember that. I remember he was kind of this guy who uh, would get upset if, uh, as we, we, we've been friends since we were six, so yeah, if we were hanging out at his house and his mom would tell him, hey, you've got to mow the lawn before you go uh, do anything with Max, he would get really upset. And oh, I can't believe this Max is here. I've got to mow the, oh, I'm so, man, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and he was in a boating accident and almost died. Uh, his face, uh, the boat uh, slammed right into a, 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 re, a, a rock jetty and it came to a complete stop and his face smashed into the windshield of the boat. It smashed his entire face. He lost his right eye. He now has a glass eye. Uh, he almost died and he'll tell you, uh, that gave him a completely new perspective that every day is a gift. And now he says the small stuff does not bother him at all. Uh, he doesn't care about those things because it gave him a new, new perspective on life. And David here in verse 6, he, he furthers his case. Uh, he not only uh, speaks of the brevity of life, but, but notice in verse 6, he also speaks of the futility of our labor. And, and what he says here is very similar to what Jesus says. You know, da David says here in verse 6 that, that we, we heap up wealth and then we don't know who's going to gather it. The idea is that we heap it all up and then we die and somebody else takes the wealth that we've gathered. And Jesus says the same thing, that there's this man who, who his land produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. I will store, I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns and there I'm going to store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? See, David kind of realizes at this point that, that he's been so humbled that not only is ultimately his life going to end, but even any work that he does is, is ultimately going to vanish as well along with him and, and not be remembered, save for the fact that it's in Scripture. So you would think that David would have no hope, right? He's been driven to the bottom. But you see here that verse 7, as was the case for our uh, uh, passage last, last week, verse 7 is the center of the psalm and also the turning point of the psalm. You find that oftentimes in Psalms, just as a point of, of, of uh, just kind of hermeneutics here. When you read the Psalms, you find that oftentimes the main point of the Psalm is in the center, that the way the, the Psalm is, is designed, it's, it's designed to kind of be built up into this middle sentence or statement and then fade back again and it kind of mirrors one another until it gets to the center point. And we find here in verse seven, he says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? 
my hope is in you. My hope is in you, O Lord. You see, if everything in this world is transitory, then we must turn to something outside the world for our hope. Uh, One of the guys that owns the gym that I go to, he's got seemingly all the money you could ever want. Uh, He drives this amazing yellow Maserati whenever he's there. I, I always know he's there because he parks his Maserati right out front. And uh, he has multiple homes, and he was down in his home in Miami Beach not that long ago, and, you know, he owns this gym, and you you think the guy's got everything you could ever want, except recently I went in there, and uh, I had seen him for the first few months, and he had this uh, yellow lab with him, and he was always there with him behind the counter, and then I walked in there a couple months ago, and he had a picture of his yellow lab on the counter, and it said, R.I.P. Gunther. And the dog bowl was there, empty. And, uh, and I said, oh, did you lose your dog? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I'm, I'm so upset. He said, those were the best, you know, 13 years of my life. And, and I, I'm just devastated. And that was a couple months ago. I walked in there uh, this past week and I said, hey, uh, Luigi, are you, are you getting another dog? Are you planning to get another dog? And he said, yeah, I, actually I am. And he said, you know, I've been talking to people and I'm convinced now that if I get another yellow lab, my dog will be reincarnated into that new lab and I'll have him back again. And he said, I, I know that sounds crazy, but, but it's been proven. You know, lots of people talk about it. Reincarnation is real. And, and he said, you know what? Even if it's not real, that, that's my only hope in life. My only hope is that I can get my dog back again. And, you know, I... I'm just praying that I have an opportunity to talk to him further about this. In the moment, I really wanted to say something, and I thought, I don't want to tell him that your dog is not coming back right at that moment, because I just thought, he's too crushed right now for this, you know? But I'm hoping that the Lord opens up a door for me, because what kind of hope is that? And this is a man who has all kinds of fancy things, and that's his only hope. Notice that in turning to God and hoping in God, it does two things for David. One, it gives him actual reason for hope, but two, notice it, it brings him to the realization that what he's ultimately upset about is God's discipline for his sin. You see, by turning to God, David not only gains a perspective of his finitude in relation to God's eternality, but he also now gets a perspective of his sinfulness as compared to God's holiness. And that's something else he needs to be reminded of in this moment. Notice here how the, the, again, as I was saying before, the, the end of the psalm kind of mirrors the beginning. After you pass that middle point, he speaks again now of being mute and of not opening his mouth. But one scholar says this, the psalmist becomes silent again. But this time, it's not self-imposed restraint to stop himself from speaking simple words, but the silence of perception, for he has seen how God has acted, right? So what David couldn't do in his own strength, God now has done. God has brought about the silence. God has made him silent before him. And then David concludes verses 12 and 13. And we can see 
in this conclusion just how far David has traveled in this one psalm spiritually. He began with a vow to himself to remain silent, and that built up into bitter rage. And now he's praying in repentance for sin. He's tearfully realizing that more than being king of Israel, he's just a sojourner traveling through this life whose only hope is in God. What he is most of all, David says, is a pilgrim passing through just like all of his fathers before him. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 11 as it goes through that that great hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And then it says this, all these uh, people, these, these fathers of the faith, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers, that they were exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. David acknowledges here the same is true for him, that this world is not his home, that he is sojourning through. But notice the touching words here, that he does not sojourn alone. He says, I am but a sojourner, God, a sojourner with you. And we see that all throughout. When you you read the accounts of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you see how many times God says, I will be with you in your journeying. Genesis 26, the Lord appeared and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you. Genesis 28, God said to Jacob, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. Genesis 35, Jacob said to his household, put away the foreign gods. Let us arise and go to Bethel that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. Genesis 48, as Jacob's life was drawing to a close, he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Paul, as he was awaiting execution in prison, writes in 2 Timothy about all of the horrible things that have happened to him as he awaits execution. And he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Beware beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And what does Jesus say to us? When he ascends into heaven, he looks at his apostles and he says, look, I'm leaving you. But I want you to go out into the world and I want you to proclaim the gospel and I want you to make disciples and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. David recognizes this. You are with me, God. But it brings us then to this final statement of the psalm, verse 13. What does he say? After he recognizes that God is with him, he says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Do you see why this verse is so unnerving? Uh, John Calvin didn't like this verse. 
he, he felt very uncomfortable about it. He said, David, just he shouldn't be saying this. <clears throat> notice, notice here, David kind of makes four ending pleas in, in this uh, verses 12 and 13. He, he says, hear my prayer. Give ear to my cry, right? He's speaking to God. Don't hold your peace at my tears. And then the final one is, look away from me. David wants God to hear him with his ears, but not to look at him with his face. And why does he say that? He says, I want you to look away from me so that I may smile again before I die. Now this is really, really strange. And that's why, as I mentioned before I even got into this passage, that, that, that some scholars say, look, this is the most disturbing verse in the entire psalm, book of Psalms. Because all throughout the Bible, you find people all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Psalter, asking God, please look on me. Please, Lord, turn your face to me. You find people pleading, Lord, why have you turned your face from me? Lord, you've turned your face away from me. Please turn your face toward me. So why does David then say, Lord, I want you to turn your face away from me that I may smile again? I really don't have an answer. But I'll tell you what, the answer that, that I came up with this week, and the only answer that makes sense to me, is because we're not home yet. You see, God's presence is never some vague, inactive presence. God is not just like in the ether somewhere. When God is with his people, he is a personal uh, uh, person. He is personal and active, and his presence is making a difference. And so our sojourn in this life with God by our side is sometimes very joyful, but sometimes it's confusing. And sometimes life with God there by our side is heartbreaking. And God in his great mercy to us has given us some psalms that he gave. These are psalms that he inspired by his Holy Spirit. If this sounds like David is saying something horrible to God right now, Recognize that God gave him the words to say, that God intended him to say these things. God in his mercy for us gives us psalms like this that help us express the anguish that we sometimes feel in our walk home with our Lord. One scholar puts it this way, this verse reminds us that the Psalter expresses a full range of emotions. The inclusion of these few unrelieved psalms, he talked about some of the other ones, in the Psalter is vivid testimony to ancient Israel's willingness to retain a record of unresolved anguish. And it has enabled many a believer in subsequent eras to express similar anguish using them as both a model and a resource. You see how how David here is just being real. Yes, as I said before, David many, many times says, Lord, I'm so glad you're with me. 
Lord, I'm so glad that your gaze is on me. I'm so glad that I'm not walking this world alone. But in this moment, at this time, he felt this way. He said, God, God please just turn away from me. Right now, you're, you're overwhelming me. And I can't even smile. You know, as I close, perhaps no human being ever felt that full range of emotions more acutely than our Lord. Jesus, think about all of the emotion that Jesus expressed. Jesus expressed and exuded great joy at being in the presence of his Father and serving his Father. He expressed great exhaustion when his physical body just gave out and he had to take a break and, and go into the mountains and pray. Sometimes Jesus expressed great anger at the religious hypocrites and at what they had done to the temple, the money changers. Sometimes Jesus expressed great sorrow as he saw the ravages of sin and death as he stood by the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And oftentimes you see him expressing great compassion for the lost. All throughout Jesus' life, we see him expressing various emotions and speaking all the time how he feels and showing all the time what he's dealing with inside and, and how he feels at that moment. But it's interesting that when his main reason for coming to earth had arrived, when, when the turning point of all of human history had finally arrived, like David, Jesus remained mute. He, he expressed nothing. Scripture says that, that when he was on his way to the cross, he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep, sheep before its shears is silent, so he remained silent. See, Scripture says when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And you see, when Jesus hung there on the cross, bearing all the sins of his people, when everyone else had abandoned him, and perhaps all he longed for was the countenance of his father gazing upon him. He didn't have to ask for his father to turn his face away because he already had. At that moment, the father turned away from his son because he bore the sins of us and of David. You see, Jesus did all of that. He remained silent to his charges and he endured his father turning away so that you and I, Christian, so that David, who wrote this psalm, so that every other believer can one day live in the direct gaze of the I am, without fear, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and with complete joy for all eternity. It's that which we hope for. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, thank you so much for this psalm. Father, we thank you that our Lord, that our Lord did not answer the charges, but that he willingly went to the cross to pay for sins he did not commit and to receive the wrath that he did not earn, but that he drank willingly so that we may now come before you. We pray, Lord, that you would instill in us a great perspective that we might remember who we are compared to who you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name.